Okay, good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 13. We're back. We, we took a four-week hiatus and went to the book of Proverbs one Sunday, then we were in Ephesians for two Sundays, and then last week we spoke of baptism. But today we are going to pick up where we left off four weeks ago in John's Gospel account, and I invite you to follow along as I read in chapter 13, the first 35 verses. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And excuse me while I try to kill a grasshopper, which just leapt off the pulpit. Anyone here from PETA this morning? I hope not. Well, we'll ignore that grasshopper. It's gone. I was terrified by my aggressive behavior there. I got your attention back anyway. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place. And when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. 
after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. But after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children. Yet a little while am I with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Apparently, I haven't been able to verify this, but apparently uh, Martin Luther tells the story of two goats who are walking along a mountain ledge in opposite directions and they meet each other, come face to face. The ledge is too narrow for them to pass. On the right hand side, there's a, a stone wall. On the left-hand side, there's a cliff plunging hundreds of feet. And so there stand these two goats going, wanting to go in opposite directions, no room to pass. Now, Luther makes the point that if these goats were humans, they would immediately begin to butt heads until one of them, or perhaps both, were forced over the cliff to their, to their certain death. But according to Luther, what happens is this. One of those goats lies down, thereby enabling the other goat to walk over it. Uh, Here's my question for us this morning. Are we prepared to let people walk all over us? No. (laughs) What are you talking about? Uh, If I were one of those goats... I would have waited for the other goat to lie down so I could have walked over it. This is a dog-eat-dog world. And I'm going to give as good as I get. Take no prisoners. That's my motto. Now, that is human nature, isn't it? Uh, That is the flesh. And we see that in full in our society today. Who among us is prepared to allow another individual to walk over us. 
And yet, if you were paying any attention, as I read this passage of Scripture this morning, you will have noticed that that is precisely what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He allowed his creatures to walk over him. And having done so, he leaves us in the final verses we read there in John 13 with what he calls the new commandment. And not new, the commandment itself to love one another, not new in and of itself, but new by the standard by which we are to love one another. As I have loved you, as I have expressed my humility, as I have, have laid down my life for you, as I have had no regard for my rights whatsoever, as I have demonstrated my love for you, here is how you are to love one another. That is the essence of the verses that we've read this morning. And what we're going to do is try to, try to consider this text in its, in its breadth this day. We're not going to go very deep because what I'm going to do over the next Sunday or two is return to these verses and look at one or two themes or subjects in more detail, in more depth. But what I want us to get this morning is the sense of this commandment that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us and understand it in the context in which it is placed. The first 35 verses of John 13. And so as we look at this chapter, it begins, John begins with a very simple introduction. Verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Two very important points emerge from this verse. Uh, these, these points set the context for the first 35 verses, the verses we're going to consider this morning. And they set the context for the entire, what we call, the upper room discourse. Chapters 13 through 17. Two truths, two points come out of this very first verse, which, which set the context, which help us to interpret everything we find in, verses, in chapters 13 through 17. The first is Christ's purpose in this discourse. Look at what he said, what, what, what we read right at the outset of the verse. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. He knows his hour has come. He will repeat it in chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17. He will remind them time and time again that he is going away. He has come from the Father. He's going back to the Father. What's his purpose? Why does he dwell on this point? Why does he keep coming back to it? It's because he's trying to prepare them. He's trying to get them ready for what is about to happen. So our brother Keith last month went up to Colorado to, to participate in a bike ride. Keith did not go without making preparations. Now, there was training that took place here, here at home. He went up early so that he could acclimatize and adjust to the different altitude. He made preparations so that he would be ready. Well, that's what the Lord Jesus is doing in these chapters. He is preparing his disciples for that time, that day, that hour when he is no longer with them. 
That's his purpose. That comes out in this verse. The second thing that comes out in this verse is his audience. Look at the last part of verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to the end of chapter 12, you've heard me say it 50, 60, I don't know how many times, we have an account of Christ's public ministry. That public ministry is summed up in chapter 1, verse 12, where John tells us that Jesus Christ, he came to his own, but his own received him not. Who are the own, his own, in chapter 1, verse 12? It is the Jewish nation. Those who are his by, 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 by virtue of his own ethnicity, those who are his by virtue of the fact that Israel was called out of Egypt, made into a nation by God himself at Mount Sinai, Christ came to his own, and his own received him not. They rejected him. And we see that all the way through to the end of chapter 12. But now in verse 1 of chapter 13, there is a complete shift. The own, his own, that are in view in this verse is no longer the Jewish nation, but they are his own who were in the world. Listen to these two verses as I read them for you. No need to turn there in your Bibles. Just listen carefully to these words. The first found in chapter 6, verse 37 Chapter 6, verse 37, Christ declares, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Who are his own? They are those whom the Father has given him. And now listen to John chapter 10, verse 14. Again, it is the Lord Jesus speaking. I am the good shepherd. I am. Know my own, and my own know me. Who are the own? His own. They are those, firstly, whom the Father has given to the Son. They are, secondly, those whom Jesus knows. And thirdly, in our very verse, chapter 13, verse 1, look at how, look at how the own are described. Having Loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. This is not God's common love for all mankind. This is God's special love for his people. His own. Those whom the Father has given to Christ. Those whom Christ knows. Those who know him and those whom he loves and loves to the end. That's his audience. When we see that expression that he loved them to the end. What that means is that he loved them fully. He loved them completely. Christ's love for his people transcends time. 
It belongs to the realm of eternity. Scripture makes that clear that that God sets his love upon his people in eternity in Christ. But that love becomes a reality. That love is expressed in its fullness. That is, Christ loves his people completely. He loves them fully. He grants the fullest revelation of his love by loving them to the end. That is to the cross. There as we behold that bloody scene and we behold the hours of darkness and we behold the wrath of God falling upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we see him loving his own fully. Does that encourage you? I'm waiting for an amen. Somebody just say an amen. Let me know you're alive out there. He loves us completely, fully. A love which is expressed in him giving himself, laying down his life, bearing such humility, humiliation, experiencing that that separation from his father. This is his expression of love for us, his own. I find that so encouraging this morning. I trust that's an encouragement to you this morning. That is love not contingent upon what we've done or what we do. His love not contingent upon what we say or what we will say. His love not contingent upon anything in us, but contingent upon that eternal covenant made between Father and Son and expressed at Calvary's cross, a love which is changeless and a love that is boundless as it is expressed so vividly at Calvary's cross. That's his audience in these chapters. This isn't for the world, folks. This is for his own, what he is now about to say. He has spoken to the world, beginning in chapter 1, again, verse 19, more or less, right through to the end of chapter 12. He has made his claims. I am the light. I am the bread. I am the water. All of these claims. He has performed those seven signs testifying to the fact that he is God's son. They have rejected him. They have rejected him. They have rejected him. It's done. Public ministry is finished. He is now focused on his own. And he enters into a very intimate scene with his own, his bride, his church. In John chapters 13 through 17, this is what makes this portion of God's word so precious. His audience is his people. His audience is his bride. His audience, again, is those whom the Father gave him before the foundation of the world. His audience are those who know him as he knows them. His audience are those whom he has loved to the end, completely and fully. And so as we make our way through the chapters, and as we make our way through the first 35 verses of chapter 13, we must keep these two truths in mind. Christ has a very, very, very streamlined purpose that is to prepare his disciples for his departure. And he has a very specific audience in view, his own. Now, following that introduction, we have what I've called a living parable. It begins in verse two, goes all the way through to verse five. And we discover that in the midst of supper, they have sat down for supper. In the midst of it, the Lord Jesus gets up from supper. Verse four, 
He lays aside his outer garments. He takes a towel, ties it around his waist. Verse five, pours water into a basin. And what does he do? He begins to wash the disciples' feet. Significance of that lost somewhat on us today. We have socks and shoes. So it's somewhat I mean, we can we can imagine the scene. I remember years ago vacationing in South Carolina, and as you left the beach to enter the hotel, they had these mini showers. What were they for? To wash your feet. Why? Well, the hotel didn't want its patrons walking into the lobby, going down the hallways, into their rooms with dirty, sandy feet. And so you would wash them in these mini showers. Well, in this day and age, this day and age of of people going around bare feet or going around in sandals, this is standard practice. The moment you enter into somebody's home, the first thing that is done is a servant appears and he begins to wash everyone's feet. Because just over the course of the day, just by walking down the street from one door to the the next, the feet become dirty. The servant doesn't appear. The disciples and the Lord Jesus have sat down for supper. But in the midst of that supper, Christ gets up, takes off his outer garments, prepares this basin of water and washes his disciples I mean, that is startling when we pause to consider who the Lord Jesus is, isn't it? When we consider the fact that he is the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things are created. When we consider the fact that this is the Son of God. When we remember that this is the great I am. The God who is infinite, unchangeable. That is immutable. The God who is the the king, eternal and immortal. When we remember who this is. And as we see him stoop at the feet of mere dust, his creatures. And and proceed to wash their feet. we, we, We gasp, don't we? I gasp as I see him in my mind's eye. Approach Matthew, for example. Kneel down at Matthew's feet. Wet Matthew's feet and begin to wash Matthew's feet. All the while knowing that in a few hours, at the time of Christ's darkest moment, at the time of Christ's greatest need, Matthew will be nowhere to be seen. Christ knows that. As he washes the man's filthy, stinky feet, he knows that when those soldiers come for him in the garden, Matthew will run. He knows that as he is taken away to that mock trial, as he is abused, as he is humiliated, as he hangs upon Calvary's cross, Matthew will be cowering in the corner of some house somewhere. And yet the creator of the universe washes Matthew's feet. And then he comes to Peter. And he proceeds to wash Peter's feet. And as he reflects on Peter, and as he thinks about Peter, and as he looks at Peter, 
what's going through his mind. He knows. It's not a question of years or months or weeks or days. It is a question of but a few hours. He knows that Peter is going to deny him. He knows he is going to deny him three times. He knows he is going to deny any knowledge of him with cursing and swearing. He knows that in the hour when, 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 when he's at his darkest moments and, and, and the, the forces of, of evil are oppressing him and Satan is mounting his last challenge, his last temptation as, as Pilate and all of these these humans are, are opposing him and abusing him. He knows that Peter will stand there and say, I know not the man. Wow. And he washes his feet. And then he comes to Judas. This one blows the mind, does it not? And he knows that Judas for the last three years has been a simmering cesspool of malice and bitterness. He knows Judas's profession of allegiance has been a big joke. He knows what is going on in Judas's heart. He knows that in but a few moments, this snake in the grass will betray him for silver. And yet he bends down. He wets Judas's feet. He washes and he dries the feet of that traitor, knowing full well what is going through the man's mind, what is seething in the man's heart, and what Judas will do to him in but a few minutes. Folks, this is a living parable, isn't it? It's a living parable. It is a sermon without words. It is a sermon in which the Lord Jesus is demonstrating the extent of his humility, whereby he is prepared to lay aside all prerogatives. He's prepared to lay aside all claims. He's prepared to lay down all rights and wash the feet of his disciples. What is the significance of it all? Well, that brings us into a couple more sections as we move through the chapter. There is firstly a theological significance in chapter 13, verses 6 through 11, a theological significance. It comes out in Christ's discussion with Peter, comes to Peter, stoops at his feet, gets the towel out, the water's there, he's ready to begin washing. Peter objects, never will you wash my feet. And Christ responds, what I am doing now, what I'm doing now, you do not understand. But you will understand after. In other words, Peter, there is more going on here than meets the eye. You are thinking physically, Peter, but I am doing something here that has a spiritual significance. And so Peter finally agrees, but not just my feet, my head and my hands, the whole body. Wash me, Lord. And what's Christ's response in verse 10? Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Two theological truths there. First of all, there is a complete washing of the body. The Lord Jesus refers to Peter 
the other disciples minus Judas as completely clean. What I am doing now, you do not understand, but you will understand after. There is this one-time complete washing of the body. We describe it as regeneration. We describe it as the new birth. When the Lord Jesus sends the Holy Spirit into our lives and he illuminates our minds so that we see the truth of the gospel, we believe in our hearts and we love the Lord Jesus Christ, we repent and turn from our sin and we trust in him for salvation. This is the new birth, regeneration. And Peter says, wash my head and my hands. And the Lord Jesus' response is, no, your body is already clean. In other words, this is a one-time event. Regeneration happens at a moment in time never to happen again. I remember a long time back being part of a, a mission team in Russia and we were up in the, in, the, in the north, actually in the Baltics. And we had these gospel meetings night after night. And after the third or fourth gospel meeting, I began to notice as, as, as the preacher made an invitation at the end of the service that it was the same people going up every evening. Same people getting saved every night. And I queried someone about this and, and it came out that some of these some of these folks claim to have been born again eight, nine, ten times. That's impossible. You're born again once. And that's what Christ is saying to Peter. No need for me to wash your whole body. You're already clean. It's the new birth by which the Spirit of God enters in. But here's what I might must wash, Peter. Your feet. Because just as there is a one-time complete washing of the body, regeneration, There must also be a continual, repeated washing of the feet, pointing to sanctification. Yes, as a believer, I am a new creature in Christ. Yes, the Spirit of God dwells in me. I am a temple of the Lord. Yes, I am born again. Yes, I am regenerate. But the flesh lives on. And the flesh and the Spirit struggle. And I need this constant washing. I need this constant renewal. I need this constant sanctification. And look at how important it is. Look at how important it is according to Christ's words in verse 8. Jesus answered Peter, if I do not wash you. So if this does not take place, you have no share with me. There, brothers and sisters, there lies the greatest impediment to our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is what? A lack of sanctification. It is unconfessed sin that when we harbor sin in our hearts and when we start moving backwards rather than forwards and when we resist this continual washing The one thing for certain you can bank on is estrangement in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Isaiah 59, verse 2. Your iniquities, this is the Lord speaking, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you. So that he does not hear. That's what's going on here back in John 13, verse 8. If I do not wash you, 
if there is not this regular cleansing, you have no share with me. It will cost you. It will lead to estrangement in our fellowship, in our relationship. And that will take away your joy and peace. That will take away your comfort and assurance. It will lead to discouragement. It will lead to emotional distress. It will lead to mental anguish. It will lead to physical suffering. Listen to the words of this preacher. If if you list the causes, if you list the causes of your discontent, your restlessness, your unhappiness, your feverish fretfulness, you will find their names to be such as these. Pride, hatred, envy. Revenge, anger, lust, covetousness, fear, worldliness. Until these wild beasts are driven out of the soul, there can be no quietness. Oh, how much of what ails me, how much of what ails you, is the result of estrangement from Christ because of a lack of this continual Washing. I'll tell you, I'll confess it. At times, I walk around like a bone out of joint. You know what a, like a bone out of joint feels like? It, you, just, you just protect it from everything and anything. It is all consuming. It possesses the body and the mind. I walk around like a bone out of joint. And when I do, I know why. It's because Christ isn't as close as he ought to be. And the reason he isn't as close as he ought to be is because of unconfessed sin in my life. Oh, how I need this washing daily. How I need to remind myself daily that if we confess with our mouths, right, our sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't let that get you down in the dumps if it pertains to you. Confess your sin and look to Christ. And this great promise that he makes to Peter that unless I cleanse you, you have no part in me. You need this cleansing, Peter. I'm offering this cleansing to you. We all need this cleansing, this this daily account with the Lord whereby we lay our souls bare, we confess our sins to Him. And He washes us and sanctifies us and forgives us. And He does so willingly. He does so without holding a grudge. He does so without continually bringing to remembrance sins of years gone by. He does so fully. Herschel Ford tells this story about Martin Luther. One night he went to sleep troubled about his sin. In a dream he saw an angel standing by a blackboard. And at the top of the board was Luther's name. The angel, chalk in hand, was listing all of Luther's sins and the list filled the blackboard. Luther shuddered in despair, feeling that his sins were so many that he could never be forgiven. But suddenly in his dream, he saw a pierced hand writing above the list these words. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
As Luther gazed in amazement, the blood flowed from the wounded hand and washed the record clean. That's the theological significance of Christ's washing of the disciples' feet. It points to regeneration. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven without being born again. A one-time experience, the new birth. And yet having been born again, Oh, how we so desperately need to be cleansed from our sin continually that we might share in Christ and enjoy intimate fellowship and communion with him. But it doesn't stop there. Not only is this foot washing of theological significance, it's of practical significance. This comes out in verse 12, right through to verse 18. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? The theological significance, he tells Peter, what I do now, you will not understand until later. But there is a very practical significance. Do you understand it right now? That I have just put on display this this, this living parable of revealing my love for you. Revealing the extent of of my humility. Bear in mind when... The Lord Jesus got up to wash the disciples' feet. It was during the supper. Supper had already started. You see, normally the servant would have appeared as soon as these men entered the room and would have proceeded to wash their feet. But none of the disciples want to assume that responsibility. They've had plenty of time. Supper has started. They must have entered that room, been mulling around, finally uh, invited to sit down at the table. And there they are. And during that time, they've been given ample opportunity to demonstrate their humility by assuming the role of a servant and washing one another's feet. None of them will do it. And so during supper, we have a living parable. Christ himself gets up assumes the position of a servant, washes their feet. Having done so, he asks them, do you understand what I have just done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And so we see him. I mean, use your imagination. We see Christ there going through the 12 disciples. We see him at Matthew's feet. We see him at Peter's feet. We see him at Judas's feet. We reflect upon who he is. The incomparable God. The one who is holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty. And now he says, look, what I have just done is intended as an example to you. And I stand here before you and I ask myself, in light of his humility and selflessness, why do I have such a problem forgiving people for the slightest insult? For the slightest provocations, why do I have such problems exercising humility toward people who do something as trivial as step on my big toe? What is it I think about myself? 
that somehow I can demand the respect and the position that I think I merit and deserve. How is it possible that we can even be even think like that in the slightest in the light of this living parable? So Christ's lesson, the practical significance is obvious. Look, you've just sat there with your mouths gaping open as I've done this. You call me teacher, Lord, bang on. I am great. And yet I have washed your feet. And here's what you are to do. You are to follow my example by washing one another's feet. That's the practical significance. As we move on in the narrative, we come to Judas. Now, we might think that's odd. We might think, okay, the foot washing ceremony is done. Uh, John's moving on to bigger and better things. Maybe a chapter break would have been helpful here. And now we're going to learn all about Judas. No, 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 no. Judas is introduced back in verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. So Judas is introduced right at the outset of the narrative. And look again, there is an inference to Judas right there in, in, in verse 11. For he knew, John says, he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And now look, there's another inference to Judas, verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Judas is not one of my own. Judas has never been washed. You are clean. He is not clean. I do not speak of all of you. He is the son of perdition. And Judas has already made up his mind what he is going to do. This, this. And so now we enter into these verses in which John sheds more light on Judas and his betrayal of the Lord Jesus and this exchange that takes place. Well, why? Why this emphasis on Judas? I think it's to provide a backdrop by which the resplendent glory of Christ's love and humility shines forth. It's been a long time since I've bought diamonds. A long time. But I don't suppose things have changed. You go into a jewelry store, a diamond store, they just don't throw those diamonds any old way in the display cabinet and let you take a look. What do they do? Oh, they set them all up. And more often than not, they set them against what? A dark, black backdrop. Why? To show forth the qualities of the diamonds. That they're even more brilliant. They shine forth. And what we have in this narrative as it unfolds is we have this contrast between Judas and Christ. We have Christ's humility shining forth against the backdrop of Judas's pride and arrogance. And we have Christ's love shining forth. The resplendent glory of his love shining Against that black backdrop of Judas's hatred. And so the Lord Jesus announces, he declares that one of the disciples is going to betray him. Oh, please take note of verse 22. The disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. They did not immediately think to themselves, 
Well, we all know who that is, folks. It's Judas. They are all surprised by Judas's betrayal. They have no idea who it is. Peter notices that John is lying close to, to, to Jesus. He asks John to ask Jesus. You need to, you need to picture this scene. Don't picture that famous artwork of the Last Supper. It was nothing like that. When they sat down to eat, they actually didn't sit. They, they, they lie down. As you imagine 12 beds or cots or whatever you want in a circle around the table, this communal meal of which they are about to partake, and they would be lying down on these cots, these beds, they're resting themselves, supporting themselves with their left arm, feeding with their right hand, and so there'd be somebody in front of everyone else right round. John is lying right there in front of the Lord Jesus. Peter, perhaps on the other side of the table, signals to John, you're close, ask him. John leans back. Are you getting the picture? All he simply does is turn around and he's looking into whose face? Face of the Lord Jesus. Who is it, Lord? Who is it? Jesus answered, verse 26, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Judas's pride and 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 arrogance, which had such a hold on him, seen right back there. Do you remember when Mary so lavishly washed the feet of the Lord Jesus with that expensive perfume and, and dried his feet with her hair? And Judas is livid. And there we see what really makes Judas tick and what's going on in his heart. He resents this lavish display of Christ's worth. His own pride gets the better of him. His own arrogance grips him. And not just that, but his hatred toward the Lord Jesus. And what a fitting statement right there in verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And this is no coincidence, folks. And it was. It was night. It was night. Reflecting the darkness that had engulfed Judas's own soul. And then we come finally in verse 31 through to the end, verse 35, to the new commandment set in the context of everything that precedes it. And the Lord Jesus declares, as he has said it before, verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. How? It's the cross. At the cross, he will reveal his attributes, his holiness, his righteousness, his loving kindness. And as he reveals his attributes, he will of necessity manifest the glory of God. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. I'm going, I'm going. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. But here is what is to occupy you. Here is what is to be forefront in your mind. If you have got anything out of what you have just seen, what you have just heard, what you have just witnessed, I pray you have got this, a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. How has he loved them? We come full circle, right back to the first verse. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And he puts that love on display by washing their feet. And in so doing, pointing to Calvary's cross, 
where he will make that greatest statement of his love for his own. And he says, this is the new commandment. You've heard it before that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, this is a new commandment. You are to love one another. Here's the new standard. As I have loved you. And do you love like that? If you aren't a Christian, the answer is definitely no. And you can't love like that. This is a supernatural love that flows from supernatural humility that flows from a supernatural new birth. If you aren't a Christian, you do not and you cannot love like this. You need to be washed. First things first. You must be born again. You must have the Spirit of God within, giving you a new mind, a new heart, a new will. And out of that, out of the Spirit of grace working within, flows obedience to this commandment. So for those of us who are Christians, do we love like this? And Do you really love like this? Do I really love like this? In my own flesh, sinfulness, I know I do not. But in Christ, and with the help of the Spirit of God, and by God's grace, this is what each of us is called to. What what would that look like? What would that look like in my personal life? Pray tell, what would that look like in my marriage? What would that look like as I rub shoulders with other Christians here at Grace Community Church or wherever your, your local church is? I mean, how can I do that? Where do I get this kind of humility from? And what is that really all about? How does the Holy Spirit help me to do this? And, and, and how can I, how can I really put into practice Christ's living parable? And how can I really obey this commandment in the Lord? Well, for the answer to these and other questions, you're going to have to come back next Sunday. Because my time is gone. My time has run away ahead of me. But it sets the context. It sets the stage as Lord willing next Sunday we'll come back to this same chapter. We'll come back to these same verses. We'll come back to this same living parable and consider by God's help what this humility is all about. How this humility should be made manifest in us and how we can obey the new commandment to love one another as Christ has loved us. Our Heavenly Father, We simply ask your blessing upon all that we have considered this morning. We pray that you would take your word and drive it home. May you give us understanding and give us hearts to put into practice what we have heard. And we do praise the name of Jesus this day. We think of not merely this this scene where when he washed his disciples' feet, but of even greater significance and on a far greater scale we consider his love poured out at Calvary's cross. Help us to think highly of him today. Help us to esteem him. Help us to give him the preeminence in our lives. 
We ask it now in his most holy name. Amen.